Welcome to A Journey of Transformation Empowerment. You're listening to Antonio T. Smith Jr. Where ideas ignite, change, and possibilities are endless. Before we dive into today's episode, we have something special for our listeners. Today's podcast is brought to you by a groundbreaking book that's reshaping the conversation around Black economic empowerment. It's Resegregation, Volume 1, The Power Matrix, a master plan for Black group economics with wealth creation, authored by visionary Antonio T. Smith, Jr., Antonio isn't just an author. He's a former top-secret combat special operations intelligence sergeant turned millionaire. His life work championed the economic autonomy and wealth creation within black communities. In this seminal work, dedicated to teachings of Dr. Claude Anderson, Antonio outlines a comprehensive blueprint covering critical sectors like finance, technology, manufacturing, and more. He blends military discipline with acute understanding of systematic disparity. This isn't just a book. It's a movement. A call to action to create lasting wealth and reshaping the economic narrative. Antonio's vision is clear. Drive a significant shift toward black ownership and control. Listeners, if you've ever wondered about innovative strategies for wealth creation or how technological transformation can uplift the black communities, then this book is for you. Join Antonio Smith Jr. on the transformative journey. Pick up your copy of The Resegregation Volume 1, The Power Matrix today and be a part of the reshaping future. Now, let's dive into the episode and explore the possibilities that await us. Lecture 10, Mark 8, 27 through 30, The Arrival of the King. Okay, so we appreciate all of you. We've definitely got a good class um, today. I'm going to need a good um, 30 because this is important. I've been leading to this point, almost this point, but this point is important. Actually, it probably is leading up to this point. Actually, let's say it is leading up to this point because this is the hinge point. And so I want to go to Mark chapter 7. No, excuse me, Mark chapter 8. But before we get there, I want to tell you what we've been doing, and then I've, I've sent uh, Reverend Raju here some stuff that I want to read to you, the argument in full. What if is what we have called this particular study. What if? And what do we mean by that? What would be the message of the New Testament if it only consisted of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What would be that message? And, and, and so what happens is it, it forces us to have a correct theology concerning the gospel. What is the gospel? Is, is it the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? If so, did Jesus Christ preach the death, burial, and resurrection of himself? Can you preach 
the gospel, before the death, burial, and resurrection, all these questions come into play. And the truth is, we've answered them along the way. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that's not it. That's half the story, or, or even a portion of the story. There is a lot more. So you got that pulled up for me? So here's what we've done in week one. So I'm going to tell you what we've done, and then I'm going to tell you, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to tell you where we're going. See if I can thank you very much. So what's the gospel? Because this is the deal. You can't say it's justification by faith. So stop that. You can't do that. Because that's, that's what Paul is arguing and one thing that Paul is arguing, that you are justified by your faith. Paul's not saying that it's the gospel. Paul is saying you're justified. It's part of the gospel. He's not saying this is completely the gospel. So here's what we've argued. This is the ninth week. And I've got to do this because I want to get you to, I want to construct this for you. The ninth week, I said, whatever the gospel is, whatever it is, it's the kingdom. Whatever it is, whatever the fullness of the gospel. And of course, we'll, by the end, I will, I'll tell you in full. Second week, I said, it's continuity. Somehow we need to understand that it's both the Old and the New Testament together. Third week, it's, it's the genealogy. And so Matthew spends a lot of time talking about the genealogy and how important it was to be Hebrew. So a big part of the gospel is to be of Hebrew descent, not just to be of Hebrew descent, but to be of Hebrew descent. And when you think about this, when you become of Christ, you actually become of the line of Abraham. So it takes this physical bornness of being Hebrew and now you're spiritually of Abraham or you're spiritually Hebrew, put that back on for me. So it was spiritually Hebrew, if that makes sense. You're not, you don't have to physically be a Hebrew. Now you can be spiritually one. Or the way they called it back then is Judaizers. Basically, you don't have to become Jew to be Christian. So you don't have to worship in the temple. You don't have to uh, not eat certain meats. You don't need to be circumcised on the eighth day. You don't need to do all these Jewish uh, things and, and rituals in which God himself had. Uh, put down. It's God on earth. That was the next week. So basically the, 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 the kingdom, excuse me, the gospel has a lot to do with God being on earth. It's uh, fulfillment and recapitulation. Recapit- God is retracing these steps. We'll explain this here. We've already explained it. Heaven and earth and the triumph of the second Adam. Jesus is the first to proclaim the gospel. The gospel is relatable. And then here's what I want to talk about today. So understand what I'm saying. That whatever the gospel is, you cannot say the gospel is just something you can spit off in one sentence. The gospel is a lot more than just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, we always leave it out by accident, he says the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, comma, according to scriptures. So, check this out. Let me pray real quick. God, we come to you right now and we thank you for what is about to happen. It's a very important lesson in which we need. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, in repeat or in repetition, what if, what would be the message of the New Testament if it only consisted of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Have you ever looked at your Bible and wondered what's the main point of the Bible? What's, what's the main thing God is trying to do? Is it, is it to save us? Is it... Is God, I mean, you, you can hear this in, in a lot of sermons. Is God, is he trying to rescue us from this world and put us into heaven? Is that, is the point of God to put us into heaven? Because 
If that is the point, where is that actually in the gospel? See, now we feel to get a little difficult here. What's the message of the New Testament, if it only existed, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? But where in the Old Testament does God say the point of all of this is for you to get to heaven? Think about it for a second. Nowhere in the Bible, really, does it say, die with me and go to heaven. There's, there's something more that God is trying to do. So I'm going to submit to you a few things that you don't realize that you're doing. You're, you're, you're drinking the Kool-Aid of other generations and you don't even realize it. It was customary, so since we're in America, it's customary for the African-American culture to understand that your reward is in heaven. It's also customary for a Protestant to understand that your reward is in heaven. As a matter of fact, nobody on planet Earth should work harder than a Protestant. You know why? Because we believe that we're not working for man, we're working for the Father. Which means that, and of course this is, this is for Catholics and any other denomination as well, but it's really so much that no matter how I feel, when I clock into work, I'm clocking into work for God. Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter if you cuss me out. It doesn't matter if I like my balls. It doesn't matter if we want to gossip around the water cooler. That's something I can't do because I need to honor God. So where, where are we getting this thinking? And that's actually correct thinking, but where are we getting this thinking from? Let's think of it. So I brought up uh, African-American culture. It's, it's your reward in heaven. So true, great is your reward in heaven, all these things. But think about that for a second. Growing up in the Western Hemisphere for the African-American culture was not something that was easy to do, especially if you're in the 1500s and the 1600s and the 1700s. So you literally are drinking the Kool-Aid of our ancestors, our, our slave ancestors, God rest their soul, because their reward was most certainly not on planet Earth. As a matter of fact, you would do better off dying to be freed from this world. Amen. Does that make sense? Now, that's right and it's half the battle. So what Jesus Christ, what God does is he's trying to let you die to yourself to be freed from this world. But never on planet earth, never in the Bible, does God say, listen, um, what I need for you to do is I need for you to don't worry about the world down here and I'll rescue you from down here and then I'll take you up there with me. Now, we've got some scriptures and we, which, which we'll love to do that, like the man on the cross. Uh, Today you'll be with me in paradise and things like that. We got some scripture, but that's not, uh, first off, that, that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a very difficult scripture to handle, which we won't handle today. And also, that's, that's like an exception. That's, that's this man's dying on his deathbed type thing. Uh, don't hang all your theology. Like, you're not going to know when you're right about to die. That's, that's probably not going to be your benefit. Amen. Amen. All right. Right. So here's the deal. How do you handle it when you've been taught that heaven is your goal? Heaven is where it's at. Because don't you remember scriptures say heaven and earth shall pass away? Right. Heaven and earth shall pass away. It's not a metaphor. Heaven and heaven is literally going to pass away. Heaven is literally going to pass away. You don't believe me? That's OK. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40 says it. 
that this, the grass withers, the flower fades, the men are just like grass. And then Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the old heaven had passed away, and I saw the new Jerusalem descending upon earth. Basically, God is going to destroy all there is and make his original creation, make this creation back to his original creation. So this earth, the Lord will save. Don't miss that because it just go, it goes against almost every single thing you've been taught. Why would God create something and then tell you to escape from what he created? Think about it for a second. Your definition of God would cease to be God if God made a mistake and created this world. How can you be all perfect if what you created is not perfect? Does that make sense? Like you literally, by definition, by philosophical definition, you cease to be perfect if you made the world. And you go, ooh, I made a mistake. Let me escape everybody from the world and bring them into heaven. Okay. I know that was a bit way over there. But think about it for a second. You, God did not create this world for you to abandon it. Now, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying has lots of heavy implications here. And it should. Because you need to stop living a life in which you're so heavenly bound that you're no earthly good. You need to stop living a life in which... It's okay because I'm going to get to heaven. My reward is great in heaven, but you're still cursing out your coworkers because you don't think that heaven is on earth right now. You need to stop being so evil to your spouse and your brothers and your sisters because, well, when I get up there, I'll be right. But until then, I, God knows my heart. Come on, come on. Come on. Okay, amen, right? And this, but this is the way we treat the gospel because this is the only gospel that we have according to our understanding. In which, in truth, God has said, that I created this world and I'm going to recreate it back to my original creation. Let me give you the entire point of the Bible in about one minute. I'm going to go very fast. God created the world in Genesis chapter 1. Two kingdoms were on planet earth coexisting in the same place at the same time. Kingdom of man, kingdom of God. Man sinned. Kingdom of heaven, went, kingdom of God went up. Kingdom of man went down and have been separated ever since. No longer in two. You don't believe that? It was literally heaven on earth. How do we know it was heaven on earth? Because God himself walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He didn't think and speak to Adam. He literally walked with Adam and said, Adam, where are you? You're, there's some stuff wrong happening here. You can't walk with God if you're not perfect as God. Does that make sense? If God's going to be on earth and he's literally existing with you, that means he is worthy and you are worthy enough to walk with him hand in hand. And so God says, okay, well, you messed that up because you sinned. So now you can't be with me. So let me exile you from the land. And now you must be separated from my physical presence because you're unworthy. I mean, anybody ever been separated from God in here that you understand that your sin sometimes keeps you so far away from God that you can't really get back to his presence only to find out later that though you're so far away from him, he's never really far away from you. Amen. And so God says, okay, 
I had all my presence. All the kingdom of God was on the earth in the kingdom of man. So let me do this again. And he does it with all these different covenants. He does it with the Mosaic, the, excuse me, sorry, he does it with the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, and a few other scriptures, but specifically Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, okay, let me call a nation, and now I've got this kingdom of heaven through this man, Abraham. But build a tabernacle, Moses, later on, he says, and I'm going to live in this tabernacle. Free point, God was so awesome in living in this tabernacle that the people actually followed the mist. When the mist stayed over the tabernacle, the people stopped. When the mist moved, the people moved. Wouldn't your life be better if you moved when God moved and you stayed when God stayed? Amen. Hey, that was for free. And then you go, all these pockets of heaven on earth that God has, he has it right there in the tabernacle, then he makes it in the temple. And how do we know this? Because all blessings flow from the temple. God's presence was at the holiest inside the temple, the holy of holies, and all your sins were forgiven at the temple with this animal sacrifices. So God literally has this wonderful pocket of heaven on earth. So while we left him in sin, he has to plan to come back to us and live amongst us but we were still too unworthy to live with him as in the Garden of Eden. Is this starting to make sense? And so at the temple, when Jesus walks through it, that's now God going back into where God is, going back to where God is his most holy. And Jesus walks in there as a man, also God, but as a man, what I want to point out right now, and he's the only person worthy enough to be reunited with the Father and not be killed for it. And because he was worthy enough, we are now worthy enough. I'll explain here in a little bit. The true miracle of Jesus Christ is not that he was God and that he put on flesh. That's awesome. John says it. That is true. He did tabernacle amongst us. The true miracle of uh, Jesus Christ is not that he was just all God. It's that he was all man and refused to sin. Somebody missed what I just said. The true miracle of Jesus Christ is that he had an option to mess up and he did not. He resisted every single thing that we don't. He resisted every single temptation that Adam did not, the first Christ. In fact, you can find this argument in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. Paul argues that Adam was a type of Christ, but a new Christ comes in and fixes everything that the old Christ messed up. Where one Christ left sin and death in the world, the other Christ brought life into the world. Now, why are we using this, this, this word Christ? This is what Paul does. Basically, Adam was perfect. Why was he perfect? He was created by a perfect God. And then Adam was created from a perfect lamb. And then Adam got God's perfect breath blown into him. And Adam became a living soul. So every single thing that made Adam was perfect. And Adam was made in perfection until he sinned and became just like us or we became just like him. So here's the point. God says, I've always been here on earth. But now... I'm going to allow my temple to be destroyed in 70 A.D. because I no longer want to be here. I want to be here. Do you remember that when Jesus rises from the dead, when actually, excuse me, when he's crucified, the Bible says that the veil broke from top to bottom. This veil that was covering the holy of holies. This veil that would not let you go into your unworthiness into a certain part of the year. Then you had to be the high priest to do that. And God says in Jesus death, which I'm about to explain what Jesus is in Jesus death. 
this veil that did not give you access, I broke it. God, that really felt good in somebody. So you don't have access to me, but because he died, you have access to me. And so I have to, I'm ripping what I once put up. See, we can do, do some more reversal. Genesis chapter 11. Man got so proud that we tried to build a tower to get to God. And so we could just live back with him the way it used to be and let him know what we think about what he's doing down here. Amen. And so what God does is he divides our languages, thus dividing us as a people. That make sense? Okay. Watch this reversal. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 specifically, see, the Holy Spirit is so discerning. It would never put something inside the Bible that it did not intend for you to actually read. And so Acts chapter 2 says that the Holy Spirit fell upon everybody like tongues and all of them were united by hearing different tongues in the same tongue. So where God divided us in Genesis chapter 11... With the spirit, he united us in Acts chapter 2. All because, which is 50 days after the death, because Jesus died. And so in his death, his death becomes something that splits the veil and either, you could take it one or two ways, lets you in or rushes God out. Now, let's take the rushes God out angle. Now, both of them are are perfectly fine, but I want to empower you for a second. God loves you so much. This gospel is so powerful that it's not about you getting into heaven. That's, 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 that's a part of the story. John speaks frequently about this age to come, about there's a life after death, after the life after death. Does that make sense? There's a life after life after death. There's the life after death, and then there's an age to come that shall have no end, Amen. in which the new Jerusalem, Revelation 20, 21 through 2, comes down and takes over this world. And so here you have it. The temple's destroyed. And before it is destroyed, when Jesus dies, God now has more pockets of heaven on earth. But instead of it being in the temple or the tabernacle, it's in you. And every single time you accept and believe that Jesus Christ, which I'm going to explain that, and that's how we're going to end, is the Lord, you become a tabernacle for God. John chapter 1 in the prologue, John says that Jesus, in the Greek word, it says tabernacled amongst us. And your your Bible would say dwelled amongst us. This tabernacle that that, that John uses says that this this divine God puts on our wicked nature and tabernacles, uses it as a tabernacle for his divinity. He puts on what is absolutely wrong. And then lives in it and empowers it to be right. That should have liberated everybody in this room. Because if you don't realize, I've been talking about you the whole time. Because right now, you may not be Jesus, but Jesus is in you. First John 4 and 4. Greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. The Holy Spirit has descended, about, descended down on planet earth. And now you have become the temple. God loves you so much in all your filth that he says that as ugly as you are, you are my temple. You are my living temple, and I can't wait to live inside of you. This is why Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7 chapter, listen, man, respect your temple because God loves your temple. 
Don't be going around to all this sexual immorality with your temple and putting all this crazy stuff on your temple. Respect your temple because he's respecting you by living in your temple. How much less would you sin if every time you sin, you actually was consciously aware of the fact that Jesus Christ was with you, that God was with you? Would you, would you, would you, I don't know how to say this politically. How would, how less would you go in the wrong door that does not belong to you? And the door happens to be married or something. We'll just say it that way. If you knew that when you laid down, so did God. Amen. How much less would you cuss out your boss if you knew that every time you talked, God was in your vocal cords? And so when you have an accurate depiction of God, then you begin to realize that, wow, he's not just this, this transcendent, which this, this way up there out of the world, something that's not imminent, imminent me being in this world, transcendent out of this world. He's, he's not this transcendent being up there watching me. He is, but he's also this imminent being living in me. So while he's giving out orders, the God in me is receiving them. While he has all power, the God in me is giving me all power. Paul tries to break this down. Paul says, listen, even at your weakest, God's strength will become perfect. Because the weaker your flesh gets, the weaker your pride gets, and the stronger God gets. Now, weaker, not in a sense of weak, you to be temptation or be tempted or do something silly. But weak as in, God, I just, I just can't do it no more. You can have the wheel now. Anybody ever got to that point in your life and you're just like, you know what? I'm just done with it. I just, whatever you, if you don't do it, Lord, it's just not going to get did. I just can't do it anymore. I'm tired of fighting this battle. Okay, I must be the only one that's been tired of fighting battles over and over again. And so here's what I want you to see. Because I, I gave, gave you the text, but I'm actually explaining the text. And then I'm going to read the text. And then I'm going to close. But I need, I need to tell you all this. Because I need for you to, from now on, every time you hear anything in the Bible, you need to hear it through the big picture or the meta-narrative, the, the, the big overall arching story. These, God didn't just write scriptures for you to beat somebody in the head with because you disagree with their lifestyle. God had a whole picture about these things. God also died. Jesus Christ literally died on the cross. And the first thing he did as he was dying, is he, in fact, let, let, me, let me see if I can do this dramatically. I'm going to do this dramatically. The first thing Jesus, Jesus is dying. What's up, cuz? You doing all right? Jesus is dying. And what he does is he has a few minutes left and he says, hold on, God, just give me a second. Let me pray for the people killing me. That's absolutely insane. He, in, the, in the next two things, the first three things Jesus does on the cross is he prays for the people who are killing him. He is not praying for people who believe in him. The, if, if you want to argue that, the only thing you can say is that he took care of his mother and told one of his disciples, that's your new mother. Other than that, Jesus said, I know y'all don't like me. I know you don't believe in me. I know you just whipped my entire beard off and I have lashes and lesions all over my body. But let me pray for you. And so the gospel is way more than just his death, burial, and resurrection. It's, just, it's way more than just correcting people. 
It's about the arrival of the true king. And that's what this text is getting ready to tell us. This, this, the king has arrived. So let me explain to you the king. Two, two more movements and we're done. First off, God, Greek calls it an, an akon is the way I would say it in English, which means that when God told us to, in Genesis chapter 1, when God said, have dominion over the earth, God said, listen, I love you so much, uh, uh, human beings. I need you to rule this world with me. Remember, I told you the two kingdoms were together at one, kingdom of man, kingdom of heaven, coexisting. And God says, listen, I'm God, and I'm making you God-like, lowercase g. And I need for you to rule with me, but we got so proud that we tried to rule as him. And so we lost everything. Instead of helping God, we tried to replace God. Now be honest with yourself. Every time you've ever gotten in trouble, it's because you stopped working with God and you start working as God in your life. Every time you've ever been to jail is because you worked as God in your situation. Every single time you ever cut somebody out because you decide to be judge, jury, and executioner and God of your situation. In fact, I know some Matter of fact, I ain't going to say I know some folks. It's been many a times when I tried to do the right thing and say, God, you know what? You take it too long. I got it from here because she need exactly what she deserves. Come on now. You go ahead and be honest with me. You said the same thing too, right? And so God says, rule with me. But here's what we ultimately prove to God. So Akon means kings. He wants, because you can't have a dominion without a domain. This is kingly royalty language. This is why uh, Peter says, you know, we're all priests, we're all believers, we're all this, we're all this kingly nature, as if, as uh, Hebrews 7 says, that Jesus is the, the priest after King uh, uh, Melchizedek. As he is king, so are we. So for, well, this is for free. So women or men, stop letting somebody lower your value when God already made you a king or a queen. Amen. That was for free. It wasn't even part of the script. But here's the deal. These, these, these acons, us, we're supposed to rule as, with God. We decide to rule as him, and we get all hell in, as a, the side effect or the result. And so the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, okay, get you a king. And then we, we, then we prove again we can't be kings. So we couldn't be kings in the Garden of Eden when we had everything. And we didn't be kings correctly when God gave us everything again, and then God sent the king, and we proved we couldn't even follow the king, and that's where we're going. So, not only did we, not only were we poor kings, we were also poor servants. So, we can't rule, and we don't know how to be ruled. And this is, this is a big piece of the gospel, that God sends you to be kings, you messed that up, then he sends you to serve the king, and you messed that up too. So either way, your nature doesn't work on either side, and I have to fix this thing together. Because I tried to hook you up, you ain't want to do that. So I tried to rule over you, you ain't want to do that. And so now you just messed up all over the place. I clearly have to do something that you cannot do yourself. And so Jesus Christ becomes that something. Every time you hear the word Christ... You need to hear it in this manner. Jesus Christ, from now on, you need to hear it as Jesus the King. His name is Jesus the Christ. In Greek, it's Jesus, and has a definite article, the, the, and then Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. It's, his, it's like Mr. President. Mr. is not his first name. And, and if we have an election with a woman, Mrs. won't be her first name. 
name of a, a one election with a woman. Mrs. won't be her first name. It's a title. It's something that gives this person recognition, and you should submit to that title. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is the king, and Jesus the king has arrived on planet Earth. And since he was always the king, and we, didn't, we, we failed to be kings, Jesus, God sends Jesus, okay, let me send you what kingdomship actually looks like. So since I have all power, my job is to give it up. Mm, Lord have mercy. Since I have the authority to kill you, my God, my job is to save you. Since I do have the power to judge you, my job is not to. In order to truly rule like Jesus Christ is to give up what you think makes you Jesus Christ. And so watch this scripture, and here's where we end. Mark chapter 8. Verse 27 through 30. Here's the stage being set for you. Scholars will call this the hinge point of this gospel. Mark's really writing this long introduction for eight chapters. And he's trying to get to one main point. And then he's going to, he's going to tell you from now on how this scripture is being fulfilled. And the gospel is going to pick up even faster than what it is. Verse 27. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And Jesus, right? was with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Now remember, I already told, well, I haven't told you before, but the, the disciples are missing it. The people are missing it. They're missing the fact that God has arrived on earth and has God power. So much to the fact, in Mark chapter 5, Mark has to prove to his readers that even the disciples who supped with him and slept with him and, 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 and worshipped with him missed who he was, but the water knew exactly who he was. If you've never heard me say this here, the disciples asked, what manner of man is this? That even the winds and the waves, obey, winds and the water obey him, but the water knew because when Jesus says, peace be still, when Jesus says, stop moving, you're doing too much, the water obeyed. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 1, when, and when God was creating the world, God said, move water so the land can come up. And the last time anybody ever spoke to water and it obeyed was God. And they missed the fact that that was God on the boat, not panicking, sleeping, relaxing. And God said, be still again. And the disciples have to ask, who is this? But the water immediately recognized, that's God, let me bow down. And right after that, Mark told you it again. Well, well, listen, you, you're still not catching it. So then he tells you about these pigs and how all these demons, many of them, are inside this man. And the disciples still don't know, but the demons proclaim and profess, we know exactly who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. We know exactly. So even demons recognized who he was. Water recognized who he was. But, but, but the disciples didn't. And I'm afraid today we still have the same problem. So, verse 29. So, Jesus has to ask them, what do people say I am? This is after he already put the water, he already walked on water, he already told water to stop. What do people say that I am? And watch this tip. And they told him, well, you know, some say you John the Baptist, um, others are the prophets, and they asked him, well, but who do you say I am? And Peter, Peter says, you are the Christ. Notice that 
he puts the definite article back there. You are the Christ. You are this title. You are the Christ. And then God says, which is Jesus, says, listen, don't tell nobody that for right now. Another gospel says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Because you weren't supposed to catch in your flesh that I'm God. Because all you see is the flesh. But I'm actually God himself in your flesh. So, what's the point of the New Testament? If it only existed of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A major part of it is the arrival of the king has come. Because the king is here. And because we have issues, the king can fix it. Because we're trapped in our slavery of sin, the king can fix it. But God is establishing a new reign on planet Earth, and he sends his king. You asked for a king, you got Saul. You asked for a king, you got David. You asked for a king, you got, uh, what's the smallest one? Solomon. You got all these other, in the, in the, in the 20 in the north, and the, 19, the 21 in the south, other way around. The 21 in the north and the 20 in the south, all these other kings that you got. But now I'm sending mine. Because my king is going to do this right. And my king is going to make all of this right. And my king, his kingdom, shall have no end. Here's where we're in. The reason Jesus Christ never had to reproduce and have offspring is because once Jesus, once God raised him again, Jesus would never die again. He's living right now. See, the way kingdoms work is they work by... My job is to reproduce so my line can continue. Therefore, here's how kingdoms work. If you overthrow my throne, you need to kill every male child in my line. Not just my sons, but even my brother's sons and any other male child because they rightfully are heirs to the throne. Does that make sense? Okay. Look how Jesus takes over the throne from the world, especially from Rome. He doesn't do it with bloodshed. Jesus doesn't kill all firstborn sons and stuff. Jesus, Jesus takes over the throne by letting himself be sacrificed. And so now his kingdom shall have no end. You've heard this before because he'll never die. This is exactly why God's kingdom will have no end because there's no need for Jesus to ever have an end or his kingdom to have an end, because he cannot end. So the gospel is recognizing that Jesus is the king. But don't let him be the king in the Bible, but not the Lord over your life. He should be a whole lot more than just your savior. He should start being your Lord. Let me pray for you, Lord. We thank you that we are beginning to understand and recognize how good you have been to us. You have become the king for us. Even though you are already the king, you became the king so we can see. Now, God, I must admit to you, if, if you depended on me like that, the Bible wouldn't even read the way it reads right now. I wouldn't have went to nobody's cross. As a matter of fact, when the devil tempted me before I even began my ministry, well, right when I began my ministry, I would have, my ego would have got the best of me. My pride would have got the best of me. 
and I would have lost the battle in the wilderness showing the devil who I really was even though he already knew I would have caught myself I would have had them angels catch me and if somehow I didn't do it when I was on the cross I'd have got so mad I'd have got off the cross so they didn't see that they doing me wrong and thank God that Jesus was nothing like me in the mighty name of Jesus when the pandemic began, I had the biggest problem in the world, not making money. The pandemic was actually quite a blessing for me as it almost made me a billionaire. I came really close. So the pandemic was a blessing. It was hiring people. And get this, everybody. I had 48 job positions open during the pandemic. $22 an hour with paid training. And I could not find a single person for two years to fit any of those 48 job positions. Hear me well. 48 job positions, $22 an hour, paid training, and I couldn't find someone, not one person, for those job positions. Now, is it because I hire slowly? True. But it's because I wasn't using ZipRecruiter. And that's a fact. I wasn't getting to the right people for the right position to fit my right culture. And there are so many different things that you can do this summer. As a matter of fact, you can free up as much time as you want to. But if you're not using ZipRecruiter, you're probably not going to free up that time if you're attempting to hire people. So what is ZipRecruiter? What is probably the greatest job finder that's out there? And that's why you need ZipRecruiter. You need it so you can find the right candidates. Now, it's not that ZipRecruiter helps you find jobs. It's more accurately that ZipRecruiter takes your culture, takes your job, takes what you're looking for and immediately matches them with the perfect candidate. And if the if it's if they can't find a perfect candidate, they will skip over that person and then give you the perfect candidate for you. ZipRecruiter uses one of its most powerful tools, which is the technology itself, to match the right candidates up with your job. You can easily review uh, their recommendations and easily review their recommended candidates and invite these candidates to apply for your top positions. Additionally, ZipRecruiter has a complete suite of tools that makes it easy for you to filter out, uh, review and rate candidates. Four out of five employees uh, have been used by four out of five employers on ZipRecruiter. It is a blessing. And no wonder ZipRecruiter is rated number one hiring site in the world based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of this year, January 1st. My friends, soak up everything I said. It's not an ad. This is a personal testimony of how I found the right people to sit in the right seat on the right bus. Without ZipRecruiter, it wouldn't have been possible.
So how do you take advantage of what I'm talking about? Well, you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash B2B. All spelled the regular way. That's Zip, Z-I-P, Recruiter, R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R, ZipRecruiter.com slash B2B. And I promise you, you will be grateful that you did so. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash B2B. It's also in the show notes.